We're going to be back in the book of Luke this morning. So good to have Chandler here last week to step in and allow my family a, a, little time, uh, a little time away. I love what he is doing at, uh, with, with RUF across the street at Carson Newman and partnership that we've now had with, with RUF close to uh, actually maybe even over 10 years at this point. Uh, it's been a tremendous blessing to us and I hope a blessing to them as uh, well. And I so appreciate Chandler uh, being here to lead us and teach us last week. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look at some of Jesus' harshest words that he has in all of Scripture. So if you're used to the idea of Jesus with long flowing hair and, uh, and like, like handing out flowers to people and playing with the little kids, this is not that Jesus, all right? This is some of the, the hardest things that he will say in all of Scripture. We're in our series, Jesus for Everyone. And if you spent uh, much time in church, or maybe, maybe, if you've, uh, maybe if you've not spent much time in church, but... Or, if you've not spent much time in church, or maybe even if you have spent time in church, but you haven't studied your Bibles while you've been in church, then you might assume that the Bible is spent just railing on sin and sinners. This is the, the common conception of what Scripture is about and what Jesus is about. It is, it is this assumption that leads many to assume that the church, Jesus, the Bible... That, that, that none of those things are for them. That, 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 that stuff just isn't for me. It's for somebody else because the, the notion is that that is what the church does and that is what the Bible does. It just rails on sinners. It's, it, it, the, the church is really just for the rule followers and the goody two-shoes, and that's just not me. So I'm just going to take my dose of religion and spirituality, if I take any at all, apart from the church, because I don't fit in there. I just am not uh, a rule follower. I am not the one that fits in. And the thing is, the church has been good at finding just that, rule followers. Throughout history, the church has been really good at that. It is full of them. Those that are generally good folks, that generally do good things, that generally don't get in much trouble. That has been the, that has been the, the, the take on church for a, for a long time. Many churches can be a draw that, that, that loves to pull people that love rules, all right? It can be the church, in, especially in, in our culture, but this is throughout history too, is a place for people that, that are rule followers. The church is kind of built to be a place where they can find their niche, right? Where they can find their way to kind of get in like a, uh, like, like a light draws a, a moth. And unfortunately, the church has done a really bad job in convincing people that that is the only type of people that belong in church. That, that, that is the only type of people that, that, that should walk through our doors are the people that have it all together and the people that can follow the rules at all times. If you can't do that, then you don't belong here. We have done a poor job of creating an environment where, where people who love laws thrive and feel very, very comfortable. Like I said, a moth to the light. But as we're going to see this morning, the church should not be a place that draws in the rule followers and makes them feel at home. It should be more like a bug zapper, right? 
that draws in the people that can follow the rules and feel like this place is for them. And then when they get here, they get a rude awakening. That is a better way for the church to function. Draw them in, and just when they think they've found a place where they will be the most comfortable, it gets very, very uncomfortable very fast. So are you confused just a little bit? I mean, after all, as Christians, aren't we supposed to be rule followers? Aren't we supposed to be the people who do the right thing, who get it right, the good guys? Aren't we supposed to be those type of people? The funny thing about reading the Bible is it has a way of completely wrecking our preconceived notions about Jesus. And, yeah? So this morning we'll see that Jesus is indeed for everyone. Just like our series says, Jesus is for everyone, even if that means that he is going to lay into those that think they deserve him the most. So we've got a lot to get to this morning, a lot to cover but I think if, we, if you hang with me and we get through this, I think you will see that there is a lot Jesus is going to teach us. So 11, Luke eleven thirty three through 36. Let's read this here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar and under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus is in the middle of a section of teaching where he has just said, and this is what we looked at two weeks ago, where he has just said someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than the wisdom of Solomon, someone greater than the power and the prophet Jonah is here. This is what we saw. And then he gives this illustration about light and lamps. And honestly, it's all a little bit confusing what Jesus says here. Like, what is it that he's trying to get at? He's talking about lights and eyes and lamps and darkness and... it. What is going on here? I think Jesus is making a transition from the point that he's just been making that we looked at two weeks ago into a new point that he's going to drive home over the course of these next few, <clears throat> these next few verses. But I don't want to just buzz right by this because it is a, 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 a transition because I think what Jesus says here is very important. He says you don't hide a lamp under a stand because the whole point in the lamp is to light the room. He's used this analogy before. Back in Luke 8, he used the same analogy and we looked at it. But he's going to apply that analogy a little bit different here. He says that that your eye is like the lamp and when it's working the way it's supposed to, then your whole body will be nourished by the light. Whenever, Whenever it's doing what it's supposed to, just as the light lights the room, your whole body will be nourished by this light. But when that lamp fails to do its job then you won't be healthy either. And then Jesus says, be careful because you want to be a house that is well lit and healthy, not one that is dark and decaying. So are you still confused? Because hang with me and we can get through this here. So let me try to summarize what Jesus is saying here. I think what he is saying here is take care how we listen. Take care how we learn. Take care what we watch, what we consume, what grabs our attention, what passes for light. Take care what we open our eyes and our hearts to. Here's the thing. We all tend to think that we are, generally speaking, neutral people. 
I think this is how most of us view ourselves, with a few exceptions here or there, maybe a few seasons in life where we feel like we are advancing in a direction. For the most part, we feel like we are neutral people. We get up, we live our lives, we do our thing, we eat the same meals, we go to the same classes, we go to the same job, we do the same stuff, we have our routines, we do the same chores, we go through the same stuff over and over and over. And for the most part, we think that while we do those things, nothing is happening to us. That we are just existing and making it through life and nothing is happening. We just simply are. We're just existing and making it from day to day. The problem with that is it's completely wrong. None of us are just, just simply existing. We are always either moving towards Christ or we are moving away from Him. There is no holding pattern. There is no aimless waiting in the Christian life. Now, there may be a lot of waiting with Jesus, but there is no just sitting and waiting. There is no point where we just are. I've used this analogy before, but it's like being at the beach. You go out to the ocean and your feet get off the sand and you're out there riding the waves, but you're not anchored to anything on the ground and you look up to see your family and it's not your family in front of you anymore. It's a bunch of strangers. Your family is 20 yards down the beach. And why is that? Because the undertow has taken you down the beach and you did not even realize. Imperceptibly, you have moved all the way down the beach. You are slowly drifting away. And I think Jesus is drawing us to this reality and saying, be careful of the thing that grabs your heart and your mind because you are always moving in one direction or another, even if you don't feel like it. Maybe especially when you don't feel like it. Take care what you think is light that you don't look up five years from now and realize it's actually darkness that has filled your heart. This is what has happened to his listeners. This is the transition point he is making. They had become captivated with so many things that when the light of the world stands before them, teaches them, declares something greater than the wisdom of Solomon and something more powerful than the prophets of old, stand before them, their hearts are so darkened by the pursuit of something else and other things that they don't recognize Jesus for who he is. I think what Jesus wants us to see is that if we are looking properly, if we are pursuing properly, if we are captivated by the right things, we will see him for who he is. But if we are distracted by these other things, then not only will our heart not just be distracted, it will in fact be darkened. I think this is what Jesus is trying to tell us in this part. Don't mistake him for just another thing in your life. He is far superior to all these other things. And five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you will look up and you'll realize that your life has either been a pursuit of the light that is Jesus or of a darkness that you mistook for something better. Jesus says, be careful you pursue what matters, even when you think you're pursuing nothing at all. And this warning is now going to transition us into some very harsh words from Jesus. And it's not going to be for the outcast. It's not going to be for the rule breakers. As the average person might expect, it's going to be for the rule followers. So Luke eleven thirty seven. 37. 
While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So welcome to dinner, Jesus. Glad that we invited this guy. Kind of a rude guest, right? He goes to dinner, and, and he doesn't wash up before dinner, and, and, and the Pharisees are looking at him, and then this one particular Pharisee that is the host looks at him and is just like blown away, like, how can this guy do this? And Jesus does not mess around here. Jesus does not mess around at all. Now, we need to make sure we understand what's happening here. This sharp reply doesn't come out of nowhere for Jesus. When the Pharisee notices that Jesus doesn't wash his hands, that he doesn't wash up, the Pharisee is not repulsed because he didn't grab some hand sanitizer. He's not repulsed because, because this is like, like he's a germaphobe. This is not the point here. The point is not that he didn't clean his hands before he ate his food. The point here is that he did not ritually prepare himself to be clean, to take the meal with the Pharisee. That is the point of what is going on here. And the Pharisee is aghast that Jesus has not followed the rules. He's not doing what he's supposed to do according to not the law, because this was not part of the law that was given. You know the part in Leviticus and Deuteronomy when you're like in February and you're trying to figure out, can I make it through this year-long reading plan by reading all these laws or not? And then you give up and you forget. This is not in that section, right? This is completely extra-biblical, completely outside of the law. And what had happened is the Pharisees have created all kinds of extra laws to make sure that they don't break the actual laws. It's called fencing the law. And so they would make extra laws to make sure they didn't break the laws that actually were the laws over here. And they would have all these different layers. And one of them was this hand washing. It's not actually part of the old covenant. It's not actually part of the law. It is just an extra piece. And Jesus doesn't do this. And the Pharisees is is, is a guess that this would-be rabbi would be so careless. That he he would just shrug all this off and that he would... He would not do it. And the thing about these laws is so many of them were not about anything religious. They weren't about anything uh, practical. They weren't about even anything holy or being clean or unclean. They were about show. And so to do this kind of ritual cleansing would be one that you would do in front of others so that others would look at what you were doing and they would be like, oh, that's a good guy. Look, that guy loves the law even more than I do. Look at the extremes to which he is going to, to follow the law. I'm not like that guy. He's better than me. That was the point in most of these laws. So when Jesus doesn't keep the the rules, the Pharisee is just kind of blown away by this, that that Jesus would be so disrespectful, and Jesus is having none of it. He calls him out. He says, you want me to wash my hands. Why? If I clean the outside, it doesn't really change who I am on the inside. If the inside is nasty, it doesn't matter what the outside is looks like. At our house, we have a a problem. It's called teenagers. And I don't know if this, I think this must be all teenagers. Uh, I I have to admit, this was probably true of of me. And I'm not sure what the connection is between teenagers and dirty dishes. But oh my goodness, there are so many dirty dishes. 
And I have, it's a battle that I've basically conceded at, at this point. But, but the, the dishes that get really nasty, the dishes that really are next level, are the ones that are in a sealed cup, right? And I know you think if you've got young kids, like there's nothing like that bottle that rolled up under the seat, that, that smell that comes from that bottle that you find like a month later, or from that sippy cup that has that milk in it that's like forever old. But listen, your teenagers will put that to the test, I promise you. The, the, the stuff that, that happens, uh, it's just some nasty, nasty stuff. And, and then you've got this sealed cup, and it's this game of, let's guess how nasty this is going to be. Uh, this, this happened to me this week. So, so we made a trip down to, to Florida. Uh, this is now a couple weeks ago. And on Friday, I was cleaning some stuff out of my truck, and I pull out of the passenger side door a coffee cup, a travel coffee cup that has a sealed lid on it. And I'm like, huh. Well, there's been nobody sitting in this seat for at least a week and a half, two weeks now. We've been in some pretty hot weather, and this thing is here, and it's sealed up, and it is, it, what is going to be in this thing? And so here's the thing. If I took that up to the, the kitchen, and I washed the outside of it, and I made it look very clean, and just sat it in the, in the, the cabinet, and I said, all right, Whoever gets that next, we'll just see how it goes, right? Like, like, we'll just put this back in there. And here's the thing. If I had done that, if I had done that, then the cup is not clean, right? And it ha- who knows how long it would sit there in the cabinet and, and continue to have whatever happens is happening in that cup, right? Who knows how long that would be? So I had to open that thing and, and figure out, like, Let's, 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 play, let's play sealed cup roulette here, and let's see if this was water that got put in this cup, or let's see if this is coffee and cream that got put in this cup. It was coffee and cream, in case you're wondering. And it was nasty. It smelled awful. It's like, dump it out, wash it, put it in the dishwasher, wash it again, put it back in the dishwasher, and just hope that that odor isn't like still there, right? That's what you have to do. You can't just put the cup up. Jesus's point is obvious here. Clean the outside all you want. If you don't clean the inside, you're not going to drink out of the cup because it's still dirty. But if you clean the outside, or if you clean the inside, if you get that clean, then the outside, you can handle a few smudges and spots on the outside, right? You can handle if you drop the the travel mug in the mud, but it doesn't go in the cup, then what's in the cup is still clean, right? And this is Jesus' point. Just because it's clean on the outside doesn't mean that it's clean on the inside. Jesus says if the inside is clean and healthy, then what comes from it will be clean. And then Jesus is just going to go off. He is just going to go off. This is verse 42. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and, uh, and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without Knowing it. Three woes. So let's run through these woes real quickly and see what Jesus is getting at here. The first, the first woe is that they tithe. So why is that a woe? That's a good thing, right? This is where I, this is where I launch into 20 minutes about how you need to give us more money. No, I'm just kidding. 
Uh, Why is this a woe? This sounds like a good thing. They tithe. Jesus is pointing out that they are going well above the level that is required by the law and the things that they tithe. Which just incidentally, as a bit of an aside here, the tithe in the Old Testament is far more complicated than we try to make it whenever we try to make it apply now today in the New Covenant and in the New Testament. It's far more complicated than just giving 10% because they had to give 10%, but they had to do it multiple different times during the year, sometimes two or three times a year. They had to give 10% in all kinds of different ways. And so there's not a one-to-one comparison between the tithe in the Old Testament and what we would call the tithe in the New Testament. In fact, and this is a different sermon, I don't think that the tithe is actually a biblical thing for us, what the Bible calls us to be is to be cheerful and sacrificial givers. I think if we start playing by the rules of we need to do 10%, do you tithe on the gross or do you tithe on the, uh, on the net and do you tithe on this and do you tithe on that? If we start playing those games, then we become just like the Pharisees. We are worried about the rules, not about the heart of the rules and what drives them. That's a whole nother sermon, but I just like messed with some of y'all's heads. I know that. So But what he says here is they're tithing everything right down to their herbs. Like that's not even required, but these guys are so good, they're tithing everything. But in their pursuit of keeping the most minute part of the law, they have missed the whole point. They have kept the rules, but they have not kept the command to love God and to love others. They love their rules more than they loved God. That is Jesus' woe to them. They loved enforcing their rules more than they've loved the grace that God gives others. So Jesus says, woe to you. Second woe, they love the best seats in the house. Jesus points out that whenever these Pharisees show up at the synagogue, when they go to the marketplace, when they go wherever they are, They want recognition. They want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They want everyone to acknowledge them for how good they are. They aren't there to worship. They aren't there to shop. They aren't there to learn. They are there to be seen. He says, woe to you. And then he says, they are unmarked graves. And this one is a little bit sneaky here. To touch a grave would make a a Jewish person ceremonially uh, unclean. You would have to be purified and be reinstated to full standing and privileges if you had touched a grave. It made you unclean. So you'd have to go through the whole process of going to the temple to be, uh, to be cleansed in order to, to worship again. And Jesus says, what happens if you walk over an unmarked grave? What happens if you walk over a grave and you don't know that you have stepped on this grave? What does that do to your rules there? Are you clean or are you unclean? Turns out you're, cl- you're unclean, but you don't even know that you're unclean. So he says, how does that fit into your rules? Jesus doesn't really answer that question, but he tells the Pharisees that they are like those graves because they think that they are worthy of honor, but they are so defiled that they are making everything around them unclean and they don't even know it. Woe to you. It's a brutal call out by Jesus for these Pharisees who are so proud of who they are and how they have kept the law and what they have done. And Jesus calls them out for their rules. And he says, you've got all these rules, but you've completely missed who God is. 
And all these rules that you're so obsessed with following has made you miss someone who is greater than Solomon and someone who is greater than Jonah that stands right in front of you. You love your rules and you think your rules are light to your soul, but your soul is full of darkness. And then Luke eleven forty five. I love this part. One of the lawyers answered him. So he's talking to the Pharisees and now he's going to talk to the lawyers and the distinction in this is that the Pharisees were, were, were these people that were, were, were hardcore observers of the law. The lawyers were kind of, like, kind of like their assistants, their interpreters. These were the ones that said, okay, you can do this, you can't do that. Here's the things that you can do. We're the ones that know and we'll tell you what you can or can't do and what you need to do. And so one of the lawyers answered him and said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. This cracks me up. This, this lawyer, so he's, he, he's, he's not a, a Pharisee here. He, 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 says, he says, hang on just a second. Like, I get calling those guys out. We all can kind of see what they're doing. But you, you have offended me too. Do you realize what you're saying is offensive to all of us over here? This is not just one group that you're in, in, insulting. And Jesus takes like a page out of the sound of music here. He says, my bad. Did I insult you? I meant to accuse you. Sorry, my bad. And then he's like, let me clarify. And then he turns this direction to the lawyers. Luke eleven forty six, And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, Uh, For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So three more woes. Again, very quickly, let's look at the three woes. The first, they heap burdens and laws on people, but they don't even do as much as the Pharisees. They like to point out everything else that everybody else should be doing, But they themselves are not really interested in doing these things. They just like telling everyone else, you should have done this. I can tell you what is wrong with your life. You haven't done this. And then you say, well, you haven't done that. We're not talking about me. I'm telling you, this is what you should have done. And if you had done this, you would know God better. This is what they're trying to say. And Jesus says, you heap all all these commands on people, this burden on people, and you don't even begin to help them or even try to hold on to that yourselves. The second thing, they build monuments to the prophets of old that are celebrated in their scriptures. And in doing so, they pretend, they assume that they are on the the right side of history and that they are celebrating these prophets that were uh, were killed in uh, in, 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 in their nation's history. And Jesus says, you think you're on this side of history, but you're no different than the ones that killed them. You build the monuments and you think you honor the prophets, but if they were here, you would have killed them too because you're just like your forefathers. You live and you walk and you do things just like them. The same spirit that killed those men is the same spirit that exists in you. 
from the first murder in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in their, in their scriptures, from the mur- first murder to the last, that same spirit lives in them. They think they are heirs to this beautiful prophetic tradition. But in fact, they are heirs to those that killed those prophets. Third woe, they had been given the privilege and the right to teach Israel the law, to lead them to God. They had been given the opportunity to stand up on God's behalf, say, thus says the Lord, and they could walk people into who God was and say, this is who God is. And they have failed so miserably at that. They have not bothered to walk through the door, and in fact, they have harmed others who have tried to do it themselves. All they know is their laws and their rules. They know nothing of God. Woe to you, lawyers. So there's Jesus. Welcome to dinner. I always wonder if Jesus actually ate this meal. It doesn't say if he like stuck around and he ate or not. It doesn't really tell us one way or another. I just imagine how awkward that dinner would be if he stuck around and he, and he finished this or if he just kind of dropped the mic and walked away. I'm not sure which one it is, but it says that he went away from there. It doesn't say whether he, like how the, the food was interchanged here. But in verse 53, it says, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something that he might say. So he moves on. Uh, he moves on, and, and, and now the guys who were already these, this super angry bunch of Pharisees who were already trying to trap Jesus have like doubled down, and they're like, oh, no, he didn't. We are going to get this guy. We are going to catch him. He's going to say something dumb. He's going to say something stupid. He's going to say, he's going to have a weak moment. He's going to say something blasphemous, and when he does, we've got him. We've got him, and then we can put him out of business. And that's what, that's what he, he kind of, like, like, that's kind of what happens the rest of the book of Luke at this point. And that's, that's where all this, and I think we're going to, it's when we get what I think is the next, like, chapter here, chapter 12. I think it really belongs better in chapter 11. I think it's part of the same uh, context. Um, and I, I think these next few verses kind of form a nice bookend of the, the three things we've looked at this morning, the three kind of chunks of text. So let's look at Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, so he's got this massive crowd that he's drawn here to hear him speak and hear what he has to say. Uh, And he turns to his disciples before he starts to teach this big crowd. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The crowd's gathering around. He turns to the disciples, and he says, Don't be like those guys. Those guys are hypocrites. They put on a show. They look like one thing. They act like one thing, but they're really another. Don't let their leaven inside you. The idea here is leaven, it's another word for that is yeast. The idea here is you get a little bit inside you and it will make its way all the way through you. Like you can't have just a little bit of self-righteousness. You can't have just a little bit of sin. You can't have just a little bit of this. It will work its way through you to where it becomes part of who you are. 
Why? Because that's how it works. Even a small amount begins to spread. And so it is with us. Just a little spirit of believing that we are better than others. Just a little spirit of believing that we are more deserving of God's love. That we are better than, than this whole, like, like, we're better at this whole Christian thing than most. Just a little spirit of that. And before you know it, your heart and your soul will be taken over by the leaven of the Pharisees. So be on guard that the leaven they are spreading to others doesn't infect your soul. What Jesus is telling his Pharisees here, or his disciples here, is take care. Take care, disciples, for you. Take care, Christian, what takes hold of your heart. From the beginning of what we saw here in verses 33 through 36 to the end here in chapter 12, 1 through 3, the message is the same. Take care what your heart is captivated by, what catches your eye. Sometimes things aren't all they are cracked up to be. And once the darkness has set up shop in your heart, you may not even notice it. And while you may not notice that at some point, everyone will see it. Everyone will know what your heart looks like, including you. Everyone will see what's really in there. And when that happens, you don't want to be like that cup that looks good on the outside. But when you open it, it makes you like wretch because it's so gross. Don't be like that. That when the lid comes off, everyone knows what an awful person you are. And here's the thing. This doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't happen in a way where you can tell, like, at what point did that coffee in that travel mug go from being good to being tolerable to being nasty? I, I don't know where that moment was. It happens in a way that you don't even notice how that that happens, at least not usually. Typically, the choices you make and the things that you let into your heart and your mind will determine what is inside your heart. Even whenever you think you're just existing, even when you think you are just neutral, something is happening inside your heart. And Jesus says, be careful what's going on in there. Don't look up five years from now, 10 years from now, whenever it is, don't look up and realize, oh no, how did this happen to me? I said when we started, the church should be like a, like a bug zapper to the rule follower. It's not because following rules is bad. I want you to follow the rules. Please do follow the rules. It makes life so much easier for me as your pastor. It makes life so much easier for you, for your spouse, for your kids, for your community, for your church. If you follow the rules, things go so much better for everybody. I want you to follow the rules. I want you to live a good, upstanding, moral, ethical life. I do. But if that's all you get out of this church thing, then you've missed the point entirely. Because rule following is not the gospel. Like I said two weeks ago, I want you to not sin. But more than anything, I want you to love Jesus. 
I want you to love Jesus more than your sin, and I want you to love Jesus more than your righteousness. I want you to love him more than indulging in temptation, and I want you to love him more than your sense of fairness. Because if you love Jesus more than those things, then those other things will follow. And you will pursue the right thing and the good thing and the ethical thing and the moral thing. You will pursue those out of your love for Jesus. But if you get those backwards, you are a cup that is washed on the outside, but you are filthy on the inside. So as we close here, I want to draw our our hearts, our minds, I want to draw it to the table that is here before us. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. We'll take it after the the first song that that we sing here. Jesus tells us to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. He tells us to watch out for the the, the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees. This pervasive sin that latches onto our hearts and then goes throughout all of who we are, the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of self-exaltation. And I know of no better way to heed Jesus' warning to be careful than to come to this table and to partake of these elements here in front of us. Because when we come to this table and we partake of the unleavened bread, this is what this is. This is why it is like a cracker and not like a roll because it doesn't have the yeast in it that causes it to rise and to be soft. So when we come and we take this unleavened bread, we take it because it represents the body of Jesus, the body that was broken on our behalf for, for, for all of us that have loved sin and for all of us that have loved our own perceived righteousness. And when we come to this table and we, take, we pick up this, 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 this piece of matzah, this piece of bread, What we are confessing, what we are saying is that we are indeed not righteous people. We are indeed people who desperately need Jesus' body broken on our behalf to pay the punishment for our sin. This is what the blood represents spilled for us to cover us and our sin. So that whenever God sees us, he does not see our righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And it is only the righteousness of Jesus that gives us hope. And so when we come and we take these elements, what we are saying is, God, I confess I am not a righteous person. I am not a good person. I am not the person who can exist, who has hope apart from you. I need you to make me right. I need you to cleanse me, not just on the outside, but on the inside. That is what the table represents. And so that is our confession. You know, the, the, the funny thing is a, a lot of people like to, like to say that the, the reason that, that they don't come to church, the reason you don't come to church is because, because there's so many hypocrites there. And we can point to the Pharisees, and certainly that, that, is, that is something that, that churches can fall victim to. That is certainly something that throughout the, the history of the church, because it has drawn so many rule followers who, who love their rules, and don't love Jesus. That is a charge that we are open to. But here's, here's the thing. If we get Christianity right, if we get the scriptures right, if we get the gospel right, that charge doesn't hold. Because as best I know, coming to this table and being a part of the church, this is the only organization, if you want to use that word, that requires people to admit that they are sinners before you can join. 
We have to confess that we are not enough before we can take the table. We have to confess that we are not enough before we can be a part of this group because that is our identity. We are sinners. But it is not the most important part of our identity. The most important part of our identity is that we are sinners, but we are sinners redeemed by grace. The body broken and the blood spilled. That is the truth of the gospel. Be a rule follower, but don't love your rules. Love Jesus, because he's the one that will make you righteous, not you. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that we sin in so many ways, ways that we see and that we know, ways that we don't even realize because our hearts are so wicked and so turned. Father, it is our confession that we want to look good to others, that we want to look like the good, righteous, moral person, but we are not that person on the inside, not apart from Christ. We are filthy on the inside, apart from his cleansing. So Father, I ask that you would move in our hearts this morning, that we would know the gospel in ways that we have never known it before this morning, and that perhaps for some in this room that have spent their lives performing for others, they would hear the woes that Jesus gives, and they would respond in the need of grace. And we can all celebrate at the table that you thrill to give us that grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.